Okay, we are in, in Hebrews chapter 6, and what we had covered two weeks ago, uh, uh, the last time we spoke, is we, we talked about how a person is always, once a person is saved, that they are always saved, and this verse up here uh, that, that says, that, that says uh, um, in verse 3, and this we will do if God permits, for in, in verse 4, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted of the heavenly gift and who have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good work of God and the powers of the promise of the age to come, only for those people that have fulfilled those five things in their life, these are deep, spiritually excited people about the Lord who have experienced these five things, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, not to salvation, but to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. So in other words, this is not talking about... about uh, uh, um, about God keeping them back from getting into heaven. He's talking about if a person has gone through all of those things and then denies the Lord, it's hard for them to repent. And this is, this is actually spoken about. We, we had looked in 1 Corinthians, uh, we, in, uh, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 3, but there's this verse in Proverbs 19.3 that we had referred to, the foolishness of man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. So we have this way of just messing up our lives and then blaming God. And, and uh, so we covered all of that. So that was a really strong and hard word that the writer is giving to these people. Now he comes back on the flip side. It's very much like Christian faith. Christian faith is like this. If you look at the way Jesus would instruct his disciples, on the one hand, they would get prideful and he would just knock them down and tell them, you, you know, and, 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 and expose themselves to themselves. And then on the next moment, he's encouraging them in the Lord. And this is Christian life where, where we keep needing encouragement to get us upright in walking with the Lord. And then we start tilting over the other way and we got prideful in who we are. And then we got to go through some experience in our life to find out, well, I'm not really quite what I thought I was. And so we're balancing on this knife's edge of Christian faith where we go too much on the extreme of not realizing that we are a child of God. And then we go too far on the other side being proud in, in, in who we are. And, and so what he's doing is he's balancing this strong word that he just came up with. He's balancing it off. And he's saying in verse, here we are now in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 6. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So he had spoken in this harsh way. And I had told you, I have never in my almost 40 years of being a believer and active in the churches and around many believers, I have never seen anybody who had experienced those five manifestations in their life that we just read and then fallen away and denied the faith. So the number of people that can actually do that is a very small number. I've seen televangelists go into great immorality and fall away and even end up in prison. And never did they deny the Lord. Never did they come against the Lord. They were repentant. So I've seen lots of people stumble, but never have I seen somebody stumble and deny the Lord who has been deeply involved in the faith. So it's got to be a very small number that can even do that. But here he says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things accompanying salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So we're speaking of the extreme to where things can get. But this is not about you guys. This isn't going to happen to you. We believe better concerning you. So you see, he's 
doing totally the flip side. Well, why, why did you tell us that? Well, you know, just got to be beat around a little bit. <laughs> now I'm going to build you back up. He says, for God is not unjust so as to forget your works and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he says, God is not unjust to forget the works that you have done. He says, it would be unjust for God to forget what you've done. That's what he says. He says, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Every work that you have done in faith to bless another, every work you may have forgotten, but God has not forgotten. The scriptures say it would be unjust so as to, for it, it is, for God is not unjust so as to forget. God doesn't forget. He considers that to be unjust. If he were to forget the labors that you give, in the name of the Lord, when you're going and blessing others, God forgets none of it. There is great reward in this in heaven. Great reward. He forgets none of it. And the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of the hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. There is a walk that God wants us to be in throughout our lives. And we are to imitate those who have gone before us that are leaders in the faith. There are men, Dr. T.E. Koshi, uh, uh, Brother Bak Singh of India. These men, Dr. Delmar Brosma, these men have modeled to me faith and endurance throughout their entire lives of walking with the Lord. Of those three men that I mentioned, and then there's, there's one fourth, a, a, a fourth one as well, Buck Hatch. So three of those four men have non, now gone to be with the Lord. But I remember the things that they taught me, and I, remembered, I remember how they served the Lord right up until the end. And the one who's not yet with the Lord is in his 80s, and he's still walking with the Lord. I want to follow and imitate them. The Bible says you are to be imitators of them. You are to follow their example, be imitators of them. Through faith and patience, inherit the promises. We inherit these promises. So there are these promises of blessings that come upon us for these works that we do. The works that you do in the name of the Lord to bless other people. None of that is forgotten. And it says you obtain now the promise through endurance. I follow their example. In fact, people who know them, so people who know Brother Bhakt Singh, there, there are old Indians that know him, that know of his ministry. They hear me pray and they say, right away, they say, you sound like you've been discipled by Brother Bok Singh. Just by the way I pray. Why is that? Because I imitate them. I want to imitate them. The things that they taught me about how to read the scriptures, how to open the word of God and say, Lord, speak to me. How to read the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, pick up where I left off the day before. How to daily get my, get into the Bible. Where did I learn all that? I learned that from these men that poured their lives into my life. He says, imitate them. That's who I want to imitate. He says, imitate their example. Then he gives us the example of Abraham. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, And I will surely multiply you. 
And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and them and and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he brings up the example of Abraham. Abraham was given a promise by God at the age of 75. He told, he told, uh, God told Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. He told Abraham that he would have a son. At the age of 75, he told him that he would have offspring. At the age of 75. At the age of, of 99, he was given an oath. Now, I have read two different things. Uh, uh, some people say it was at the age of 90 or at the age of 99 that he was given the oath. Those are the two unchangeable things it's, it's referencing. The promise and the oath. So, in Genesis chapter 12, it talks about the promise at the age of 75. And then in Genesis chapter 7... In Genesis chapter 17, the oath came. And it was at the age of a hundred, at the age of a hundred, that, that, um, uh, that Abraham had his child Isaac. For 25 years he waited for the promise to be fulfilled. And our way of doing it is, Lord, I pray that you do this in my life. Lord, you know, I'm a busy guy. I got people to see, places to go. So just answer the prayer. Because you are a genie to me. I rub on this bottle. You come out and you do whatever I ask. That's our relationship, right? And that's not the way God works. That's not the way the relationship works. We ask of God and we ask and we ask again and we ask again and we seek His will and it draws us closer to Himself. For 25 years, Abraham waited. And he waited. Imagine going from a state in which he's, he's 75 years old his wife is 65 years old and a promise is given you're going to be given a child. And now they're getting older and older. It turns out Sarah is 90 years old. Abraham is 100 years old before Isaac is born. And so that had to be a miracle. Had to be. Had to be a miracle. And so you see what God did in his life. You see what he did. And Abraham lived to be 175 and Sarah lived to be 127. And so you see what God did. The promise does not always come immediately. Promises from the Word of God don't always come immediately. God made promises to me, and in fact, there is one promise that I'm holding on to that was given to me when I was 20 years old. I remember, I still remember where I was. I was kneeling by the side of the couch in a discipleship house that I was, that, 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 that I lived in, and it was early in the morning, and I was praying, and God just really spoke to my heart through a passage of Scripture. And it's a promise that I'm still holding on to that I've not yet seen fulfilled, but I'm still holding on to it. And, and, and that was, uh, I don't know, 30, 40, I don't know, 35 years ago or something like that. It's a long time. Still holding on to it. But I believe that He is faithful. He is faithful. <clears throat> then He says, you have need of endurance. If you look back up here, He says, for God, in, in, verse, in verse, uh, verse 10, for God is not unjust 
so as to forget your works and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. The good works that you do are not forgotten. These good works are not forgotten and they just stack up and stack up. And then the promise is given that I will bless you. If you walk to the end, the promise is given. So remember what these people were going to lose if they went back into Jerusalem and went back into Judaism is that they would lose the promise of the blessing that had been stacked up for them. And they were going to lose their lives. There's the loss of the future blessing and there was the loss of their life that could come, not the loss of their salvation. Now, when we think of the works that we do and we think of the way we hold on to things, it is, you, you know, we all live in this kindergarten world. And the reason I say we live in a kindergarten world because we kind of do. We kind of live in a, in a world that, that, that's really make-believe here. This is this moment in human history where, where our biggest problem is, is uh, uh, I'm wearing a Christian t-shirt and somebody made fun of me. I mean, that's, that's the depth of my persecution. All right? And so this is, this is from uh, a Torture for Christ. It was written in the 1960s by, by Pastor Richard uh, uh, Wormbrand, who was living in Romania... He, he, he was certainly a believer in Jesus, but, but uh, he was a pastor there. And he wrote this book. <clears throat> he says, uh, Richard Wormbrand said, Tortured for Christ has no literary value. This is what he says of his own book. It was written in only three days shortly after my release from prison, but it was written with pen and tears. And then he goes on. He says, he says I, I just couldn't write anymore. I could only write three days worth. It was too painful. All right, so he wrote this book in three days, and, and in some ways it, it kind of reads like that, and it's just snippet, snippet, snippet. It's not well organized, but he just didn't have the strength to go back through it. But what you see here is the torturing that these people went through, and I'm not even going to read the torturing. It's just so horrendous what they would do to people. But uh, uh, let me show you some of the things that they did in the prison. And, and, and so you'll see why our lives are kind of like in a kindergarten state when it comes to faith and, and persecution. He says, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners as it, is in ca- in, it, as it is in captive nations today. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. Okay. So he's talking about when the communists who were torturing them, he says very often the communists themselves would say something wrong or do something wrong, and they were then thrown into the prison. He says, I've seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red-hot iron pokers, in whose throats spoonfuls of salt had been forced, being kept afterward without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold, and praying with fervor for the communists. They were praying for their torturers. This is humanly inexplicable. It is the love of Christ which was poured out in our hearts. What testifies to me more than anything else is the life of believers. 
when I look at the body of Christ and what it does, it says in, in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this all men will know you that, that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. I'm amazed at what the body of Christ pours out for one another and upon other people. This to me speaks volumes of the truth of Jesus Christ. The truth of Jesus Christ. What believers do, one for another. This is what he's talking about in Hebrews when he says, all of this ministry that you've given to other people, God has not forgotten. This is inexplicable without Christ to go to the torture and be praying for those who are torturing them. Then it says, later the communists who had tortured us were sent to prison too. Under communism, communists... And even communist rulers are put in prison almost as often as their adversaries. Now the tortured and the torturer were in the same cell. And while the non-Christians showed hatred toward their former inquisitors and beat them, Christians took their defense even at the risk of being beaten themselves and accused of being accomplices with with communism. I've seen Christians give away their last slice of bread and the medicine that could save their lives to sick communist torturers who were now fellow prisoners. This is the last word of Elihu Meniu, a Christian and a former prime minister of Romania who died in prison. He said, quote, If the communists are overthrown in our country, it will be the most holy duty of every Christian to go into the streets and at the risk of their own life, defend the communists from the righteous fury of the multitudes whom they have tyrannized. I mean, how can that happen? How can that happen without the love of Christ? The love of Christ. We live in this very simple little world at this brief portion in history in this society. But this is what many people have gone through and in some countries continue to go through to walk with Christ. It is inexplicable to me when I look at the body of Christ and see what they give and what they do. He says, when I look back on my 14 years in prison, it was occasionally a very happy time. Other prisoners and even occasionally the guards very often wondered at how happy Christians could be under the most terrible circumstances. We could, not be prevented from, we could not be prevented from singing, although we were beaten for this. I imagine the nightingales, too, would sing, even if, they had, even if they knew that after finishing they would be killed for it. Christians in prison danced for joy. How could they be so happy under these tragic conditions? And so you see the way the life of God was poured out in lives. This is what he's talking about. The, the, uh, the persecution in their lives was becoming heavy. He says, God hasn't forgotten all that you've done. And then look, let's look down at the end of that chapter. It says, it says in, in uh, the last couple of verses, verse 19, this is the hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Next time we're going to start talking about Melchizedek because in chapter 7 he starts explaining about Melchizedek. He's mentioned him a couple of times now in this book. But he says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, 
a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Your hope in life is going to be this. It is going to be the Scriptures. It is going to be the Word of God. If in this period of your life, in these young days, you learn how to take the Word of God and make it your daily meditation, this will see you through all sorts of things in life, all sorts of pains in life, all sorts of times in life. Everything that I have gone through in my life is really kindergarten compared to what I just read about these Christians going through in, in uh, Romania. But still, my kindergarten is kind of hard for me sometimes because I'm a kindergartner. So the things that I go through, the Word of God is my hope. The Word of God is my sustenance. And I will give you an example from my own life of just something that's happening just this past week. So just in the last couple of weeks, I've had four of my grant proposals not funded for whatever reasons. Probably I I, I didn't do a good job writing them. But whatever whatever the reason. And you say, well, you'll be all right. Yeah, I'll be all right. But I have more than 30 people working in my laboratory and they need to be paid and they have families and they need to eat. And so that's how they are sustained. And so deep concern follows this. And so after the fourth one got declined and then another big thing came up that I was, uh, I was hoping for this summer, looked like it wasn't going to come through, I called Shireen and she just brought me right back to the Word of God. Just right back to the Word of God like she, she always does for me. Always bringing me back to the Word of God. And, uh, and, and brought me back to this passage. She said, the Lord has seen you through this several times before. I said, I know He has. I know He has. And I go right back to the Word of God. And so, so she, and then she started sending me the texts. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. Do they, not, they do not toil, nor do they spin. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow's thrown in the furnace... Will he not do much more to clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I take this verse and I bring it within the veil. And I start praying this back to the Lord. I start reading this to the Lord and praying it back to Him. And then all of a sudden, strength and encouragement comes. This is what the Word of God is talking about. This is what I'm talking about. Remember this. As you go from here, remember this. You take the Word of God and you carry it within the veil. That the Lord will sustain you. The Lord will take care of you. You are to seek His kingdom and His righteousness. 
all these things will be added to you. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He knows the support that I need. He knows my budgets better than I know my budgets. He knows what's happening. He knows the declinations and funding better than I do. So I bring it before Him. All these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. And I see that. All these unbelievers and colleagues of mine at work. This happens and hits them too. And totally wipes them out emotionally. Wipes out their groups. But I can trust in the Lord. What we go through, we take the Word of God and we carry it within the veil. That's what he's talking about. This is your sure hope. You don't give up your faith. You hold on to your faith. It is a sure thing. And a great reward awaits us. When we minister to the saints, when we carry out His will, when we do these things, we will have forgotten. The Bible says you are to give so often that your right hand forgets what your left hand has given. How can that happen? Well, it's just because you've given out so much. You forget. I don't remember. When people say, oh, thank you, you know, I, I travel all over the world. People say, I ate in your home. You think I remember the people who ate in my home? And, and, and I don't doubt them. I'm sure you ate in my home. The Bible says, if you give to one of these little ones a cup of cool water in my name, you shall not lose your reward. That's what the Bible says. Imagine giving them one of Shireen's meals. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like blessing on steroids. It's just so much. Shireen is going to go to heaven. Just, going to be, just look for the mountain of blessing and Shireen will be there. That's where she will be. All of this is just stacking up for you. Don't throw this away. This is what he's telling them. Don't throw it away. There is blessing that awaits you in following the Lord. And when the trials come, you take the word of God, you take it into the veil, behind the veil, and you pray it to the Lord and let him lift you up and encourage you. Let's pray. Father, I pray for these young people that they would remember this word. Father, that they would take hold of your word and carry it within the veil. Father, that they would remember that whatever persecutions they go through in this country, it is but a small thing compared to what believers around the world and historically have gone through. Father, I pray that you would encourage them through the word of God, that they would not grow weary in doing good works. They would not grow weary in ministering life to the saints. Father, that they could partake in this inexplicable thing, the love of Christ being poured out, the love of Christ being poured out, that they could be partakers of that. Father, I pray that you would put before them those whom they could imitate to follow that faith, to follow that kindness, to follow the love of Christ. Father, work in their lives to draw them close to you. Have mercy on their souls. And Father, for those here who do not know you, who cannot imagine what it is to pray for a persecutor, Father, I pray that you'd open up their hearts, that they would pray this very day, Lord Jesus, forgive me because I am a sinner and come into my life. And Father, I commit these young people to you for the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen.